1: Well, welcome everyone to this intelligent squared debate. I'm really delighted uh, to be taking part in this, not least because I have such mixed feelings on the subject. I am forever tweeting pictures of misplaced apostrophes and the like. And yet, I think language is a living thing, and clearly we are not all still talking or writing like Chaucer. Or whoever, whomever, whatever. <laughs> and yet, such was my delight when, in an episode of Doctor Who, John Sim, as the master, ordered, decimate them. Destroy one in every ten. No one gets decimate right anymore. We have to count on aliens for that. Now, I have a little question before we start. Just, we're all curious, given the mix um, of Intelligence Squared audience, I wonder how many people... Raise your hand if English is not your first language, if you are a non... So we have a good, a generous... Sprinkling 40, 50 people. So that would be very interesting to know um, what you think of our panelists and our debate. So I am going to start by introducing our first speaker, who is a BBC Radio 4 Today presenter. This is your cue to rise from your chair. is the author of Lost for Words, The Mangling and Manipulating of the English Language, and Beyond Words, How Language Reveals the Way We Live Now. And you have already welcomed John Humphreys, but do it again.
2: That second bit of applause doesn't come out of my allotted time, does no, 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 it? No, no, no. That's right. That's right,
1: that's no,
2: that's all right. <laughs> right, we're starting now. I want to start with a story, um, a, a short story, about a young, very poor, unsophisticated, black American kid from the Deep South who was very clever. And he won a scholarship to Harvard University. He went to Harvard on his first day there, wandering around the campus, and he saw a couple of extremely sophisticated um, Harvard uh, students standing leaning against the wall nonchalantly with their cashmere sweaters and scarves and all the rest of it. And he approached them and said, Hey, y'all, can you tell me where the lab is at? And they looked at him with disdain. And one of them said, old man, at Harvard, we tend not to end sentences with prepositions. So he looked, he looked back up at them and he said, hmm. uh, c- can you tell me where the library's at, asshole? <laughs> now, I, I tell that story, well, partly for the cheap laugh, but also, and mainly, because I want to show that those of us who support this motion are not necessarily pedants. Because what that young man did was brilliant. His English was magnificent. It was forthright, direct, entirely unambiguous. It was entertaining. It did everything that is required. He was communicating magnificently. But here's the point. You cannot communicate. He also knew how to do it in other ways, of course, because he was a clever kid. You can't communicate without a basic understanding of certain rules, and we like to call it grammar. It doesn't matter what you call it. Anybody here learned a second language? Lots of you, I dare say. Did you do it without having some understanding of the grammar of that language? Of course you didn't. I left school at the age of 15, and uh, I hated school. I was hopeless at it, thick as two short planks. But I did learn a little bit about grammar, enough to enable me to pen a sort of, Reasonable sentence, I think. Anyway, I applied for a job at the local paper at the age of fifteen, got it, and it's been downhill ever since. It worked for me. Shortly after I left school, the educationists—I'd prefer to call them um, ideologues—decided that they would abolish the teaching of grammar in our schools because they said it was uh, it was it was closing in students it was locking them into this sort of dead man dead white man's language structure and there was absolutely no need for it what we had to do was let their imaginations run free we didn't want to constrict them with rules which of course was exactly the opposite of what happens when you teach kids grammar. If you have grammar, it's a tool. It enables you to put sentences together. It enables you to communicate. Deprive them of that they cannot communicate as well as they should. So they stopped doing it. A few years later... I was uh, writing a column for the Sunday Times and uh, got a huge response to it about this particular subject. Got a huge response. Had a letter from a mother who sent me an essay that her uh, young daughter had written. She was 10 years old. And the essay had been marked by the teacher at the bottom. it, The teacher had said, very nice, but you could have written this a lot neater. Now, if I were a real pedant, I would have said, what? A lot neater? You're using an adjective when you should be using an adverb? Well, terrible English. No, what? made me just slightly upset about it, was you could have written, she had written of for have. Yeah. In drawn breath and absolute What chance? What chance did that poor kid have? She didn't... Her teacher didn't know the difference between of and have, for God's sake. But there's... Look, Eric has already made the point that, that we shouldn't try to preserve English in Aspic. Absolutely not. I love it. Absolutely love it. I've got a 13-year-old. I've also got kids up to the age of 47, which is why I look so old. Uh, My youngest is 14, and he speaks often with his friends, nearly 14, a language that I can't understand. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. It shows that they're alive to language. They're inventing. We've all done it as kids, haven't we? I mean, now they use the word sick to mean pretty good, wonderful, whatever, whereas we might have used the word cool. Well, I mean, cool was stupid, sick is stupid, but it's alive, the language is living. And I don't care if Shakespeare has Bassanio um, split infinitives. I don't care when E.L. Doctoro gives uh, Billy Bathgate the sort of Grammar that would utterly unacceptable in any respectable forum, and he doesn't observe the rules of punctuation and so on. Doesn't matter. He's alive. He's speaking as Billy Barthgate on the streets of of Brooklyn years and years and years and years ago, and it's dynamic. It's wonderful English. That's art. But what we have language for primarily is what an obvious thing I'm about to say is to communicate, and you do it by using the sort of phrasing the sort of sentences that make people feel at ease, whether they know where you're going, they know the point you're making, you if you're reasonably competent at it, they will be unambiguous. Now grammar structure is one thing, vocabulary is another, and this is one of the things that does worry me a bit. I looked at a few of the words we 've already heard a couple of uh, Erica mentioned the um, disinterested well it 's different from uninterested and it 's a good and important word we 've lost it infer is different from imply another important distinction we 've lost it. politics, democracy demands clear, unambiguous communication between us, the ruled, and them, the rulers. Orwell obviously knew a thing or two about this when he created Newspeak. He recognised that totalitarian regimes have to control what we think, and the best way to do that is to try to control the language. So they removed for Newspeak they removed all those words from the language that they were, they did not want the population to use. Very effective, at least it might have been if it had worked. We don't know. Perhaps it will be tried again. Actually, I say that they are trying it in a way. Gordon Brown did um, did a, a, a budget speech at a time when they were spending rather a lot of our money. They were at the height of the spending speed, and he delivered himself of a budget speech in which he used the word spending twice. He used the word investing 43 times. <laughs> now, do you think he was trying to deliver a message? What the politicians want us to do is to take their meaning without them having to be explicit. So it's different saying... We want prosperity for all, and this is how we're going to deliver it, as opposed to just saying prosperity or one nation. How are you going to do it? BBC, I'd like to say the BBC is entirely faultless in this. I'd like to say that we communicate always unambiguously, always clearly. I will give you a few little examples. I don't suppose I have very much time left, but I'll give you a few little examples. I dug these out for for my first book, actually, um, of where we allow just a teeny-weeny bit of um, uh, lack of ambiguity. Let's put it, let's creep in. These are from news bulletins. For the second time in six months, a prisoner at Durham jail has died after hanging himself. (laughs) Then again. And a... Another one? A suicide bomber has struck again in Jerusalem. We have, we have one minute. Six, one, one minute. minute sir. Six, 60 women have come forward to say they were assaulted by a dead gynecologist. <laughs> one wonders what he might have done had he been alive. Rather, rather more seriously, there was an appalling, atrocious assault by a gang of men on a shopping center in Kenya. In Nairobi last year, you'll remember it very well. We went to great lengths to describe these men as gunmen, extreme Islamists, whatever, whatever, whatever. We didn't use the word terrorists for a number of days. Now, what those men did was they murdered children in front of their mothers, mothers in front of their children. They murdered people for the express purpose of creating terror. Now, if that is not a definition of a terrorist, I'm damned if I know what is. And my point is, if we shy away from words that we feel might cause a bit of offence, might jolt people a bit, if we, if we try to um, find euphemisms, then it's a dangerous road to go down. We're not exactly where Orwell was, but we're kind of taking those little, tiny, tiny little baby steps towards that unhealthy um, state of affairs. And that's what I want to do and that's what Simon wants. That's what we want to do. We want we don't care particularly about between you and I. That's just stupid and everybody knows it's stupid. And why would you say it when you can say between you and me? Wrap, which is it, correct. Up, please, Mr. Wrap please. it up please. Wrap it up what? Oh, sorry? Hey, I want extra time now because she's just interrupted me. Because <laughs> I wouldn't interrupt anybody, I can tell you that. <laughs> But what you are, you're actually going to hear from Mary in a minute um, and you're going to hear from Oliver and you will be impressed by what they have to say. I'm telling you that. I know that because I've read Oliver in the Times. I've seen Mary on the telly and they are wonderful at what they do. And why is that? because they communicate with you brilliantly they use the language perfectly they are masters of the language they know the rules they know how to make it work so really what i'm going to say to you is if you approve of what they say <laughs> you vote for us obviously and uh, Thank as you. Uh, As as, as an old uh, former presenter of Radio 4 programmes used to say at the end of every one of them, somewhat I accept pedantically. If you have been, thanks for listening.
1: (laughs) And now I would like to welcome our first speaker against the motion, commentator at The Times who writes a weekly column ironically called The Pedant and author of the forthcoming Accidents Will Happen, A Guide to Modern English Usage, please welcome the freestanding Oliver Cam.
3: Thanks very much, Erica. Ladies and gentlemen, there is one thing that John and Simon and I have in common despite our disagreements. I don't want to be Personal, let alone ungracious about this, but we are not young. And this isn't an incidental detail. It is fundamental to this debate. In life, in George Eliot's magnificent construction, the middle-aged are a natural priesthood of those whom life has consecrated and disciplined to be a refuge to early stumblers, But in this field, in linguistic usage, it's not like that at all. People like us are querulous. We insist on certain essentially arbitrary designations and rules. And we get extremely cross when we see them flouted. Or as some might say, flaunted. (laughs) And this isn't really a debate about language at all. It isn't. It's a debate about an almost inconceivably minute subset of disputed usages. Things such as disinterested imply and infer uh, the use of the apostrophe. This is, compared with the great potential of language, an astonishingly limited subset of usages and disputed is the word. If there were no disagreement, if there were an obviously right body of rules, as John implies, then there would be a need for only one style manual, and we would all be taught taught from it. It isn't like that at all. Language is interesting. Language is about the way on this point I do agree with John is about the way human societies communicate every human society has complex grammatical constructions it has language language is the way that we have uh, the ability to replicate ideas we don't need to invent everything anew every time language is in the phrase of uh, Stephen Pinker the cognitive scientist in a great book It's an instinct, the language instinct, by which he means not that English toddlers have an instinct for English grammar and Japanese toddlers have an instinct for Japanese grammar, but every small child, every three-year-old, says Pinker, is a grammatical genius, is a master of complex grammatical constructions. I quoted this judgment in one of my columns once, and a Times reader wrote to me to say, if you think every," Three-year-old is a grammatical genius. Well, you haven't met my grandchildren. Now they have turned into teenagers. And of course, he was missing the point. He was was assuming that certain slang terms, such as John uh, referred to, are evidence of linguistic debasement. But every three-year-old can say faultlessly, and you will have heard it many times, I want an ice cream. It's an astonishingly complex construction of pronoun, verb, and noun phrase in object case. Every child learns it. Every child out in the park sees a canine, says doggy, sees two canines, says doggies. That child has learnt by instinct that there is a rule where a noun inflects for number by adding s. That's interesting. The sort of things that you find usage pundits talk about is not interesting. It's an incredibly narrow subset of usages which exemplify certain fallacies. It is important that children be taught the conventions of standard English. But the reason that grammar broadly defined, not technically defined, the reason that grammar broadly defined uh, fell into abeyance in classrooms in this country in the 1960s was not some progressive revolution. It was because the content of those lessons was largely rubbish. (laughs) These lessons were taken from 18th century grammarians, people like Robert Baker, Robert Louth, Lindley Murray, who crops up in uh, George Eliot quite a lot. Um, People who believed that there was a set body of rules or rather, that there wasn't and that there ought to be, and they ought to define it. And these rules were beaten, literally beaten, into generations of school children, to no good effect. I get letters every week from Times readers who I know were educated um, in this era, um, who asked me if such and such a rule still exists, split infinitives or whatever. And my answer to them is always, no, it doesn't, and no, it never did. Uh, Split infinitives is a 19th century, the uh, prohibition on split infinitives is a 19th century superstition. We can date it exactly. It comes from the 1830s. English doesn't even have an infinitive. It has uh, a subordinator, the word "to," and an infinitival form. Split infinitives are what everyone can spot and have nothing to do with good English. Yet this is the sort of stuff that appeared again and again in so-called grammar lessons. And What the style pundits, the usage pundits, continually confuse is stylistic preference, which we all have, with rules, with grammar, as John puts it. Not, in fact, grammar at all, just a set of arbitrary edicts and prejudices. The pedants, the grammar purists, the sticklers, they are hung up on the idea that a language has certain inviolable meanings and single meanings. And you can't ever change them. In fact, no English speaker, no English speaker, um, adopts a purely consistent approach that the origins of a word determine its meaning. Language doesn't work like that. Language doesn't work like that. And if you look up, as sticklers almost never do, the history of words, such as enormity, which Simon refers to in his book, when it came into the language, it did mean something of huge size, not just something... Um, uh, of, of great Oliver? wickedness.
1: Oliver? Yes. Thank you. Uh, just checking.
3: The problem with the Sticklers case, I think, comes down to this. The English-speaking world has hugely expanded over the past century. There are more non-native speakers than there are native speakers. British society has changed radically over the last century, over the last generation. In my view, almost entirely for the good. We are a freer, more tolerant, more polyglot uh, nation and society. And if you look at what the sticklers insist upon, they want uh, an Arcadia. They want a golden society that never existed. Um, They believe that there is one form of language that needs to be taught. They don't tolerate ambiguity, as John was very clear about, yet ambiguity is shot through. The English language is shot through with ambiguity. It is not essential to communication that we be absolutely unambiguous because English is a river. It flows through many tributaries. And the stickler's argument against is simply misguided and mistaken. It doesn't understand custom. And ladies and gentlemen, I've had enough of it. (laughs)
1: Well, this is definitely a debate that goes where no debate has gone before, Um, and uh, boldly indeed. And um, I'm now going to introduce our third speaker, who is for the motion, journalist on the Daily Mail, and author of Strictly English, The Correct Way to Write and Why It Matters. So please welcome Simon Heffer.
4: Thank you very much, Erica, and ladies and gentlemen. Um, in the book that has just so kindly plugged, uh, its sequel's coming out in May, by the way, so please order it now. Um, I rail against many things, uh, much I know to Oliver's distaste. Uh, but two of the things I rail against particularly are the use of cliché and the use of hyperbole. Um, Obviously, whoever framed the motion this evening didn't read the book. Um, I think the the use of the nominative for an accusative was was an attempt at humour, something I also warn against in the book. (laughs) Um, um, I'm the possessor of one of the most useless things in the world, a degree in English from Cambridge University. And uh, I read Chaucer, I read Milton, and I know very well that our language has evolved. And only an idiot, and despite appearances, I hope I'm not quite in that class, would stand up here and say that our language must be frozen. Of course, words have changed their meaning, and of course, grammar has evolved since Chaucer was writing, since Milton was writing, even since Charles Dickens was writing. And we all accept that. Things change. People change. New inventions come along that require new words. None of us had heard 40 years ago of a fax machine. Uh, So, of course, language has to change. But I take this rather old-fashioned view, and I apologise for being old-fashioned, that there was a movement towards the end of the 19th century, both in terms of words and grammar, where an attempt was made to codify our language. I forbear to say uh, that people tried to set rules. Um, That's rather to interpret. But there was an attempt to codify the language. And you had, from 1880 onwards... Uh, actually, I think before that, the, the, the programme to produce what was originally called the New English Dictionary, the of the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, it's a, a, a point that words do change their meaning, that the OED uh, had supplements and then had a second edition, and I believe a third edition is now underway. And anybody who wants to consult the OED most valuably does so by looking online, because words change all the time. I have certain beefs with Oxford University Press. For example... Um, John, I uh, actually know it was Oliver, who talked about the difference between flaunt and flout. I was first aware of uh, this catacrasis um, on the Today programme. It wasn't John, of course, who did it. It was um, somebody who was being interviewed about a football match. And uh, not that we wanted to deal in stereotypes here, you understand. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this man said, yeah, well, of course, trouble was... Uh, the trouble was, Kevin, that, you know, he was, he was flaunting the rules all over the place. And I... I was incredibly shocked by this, and... and I, I'm easily shocked before breakfast, believe me. I rushed to the uh, manuscript of uh, Strictly English, available from all good booksellers, but quite cheap on Amazon, and I entered this uh, particular mistake into, uh, into the book. I then went to the Oxford English Dictionary to make sure that I was correctly using both flaunt and flout, because even Homer nods occasionally. And I saw, when I looked up flaunt, it said, uh, occasionally used for flout. It, it, it didn't say, it's wrong. Perhaps that's not the OED's job. But it said it was there. And by putting it there and not saying it was wrong, I felt this misuse of the English language was being endorsed. After all, these are two words that are one syllable, one is six letters, one is five. It's not too difficult, even I would have thought, for the meanest of intellects to work out that one means to parade something and the other means to show disregard for something. And I worry why it is that we fetishize in this country the abuse of our language. We are a nation that is almost constantly in a cultural cringe towards many of our European neighbors. We we think that the French have better looking women than we have, that the Germans have better composers than we have. Uh, The Italians have a better cuisine than we have. We look at foreign countries and we envy them and we feel that they do things so much better than we do. But in fact, the one thing that we don't emulate in foreign countries is their their almost militaristic obsession with teaching their languages properly. I used to have a French conversation class every week. Um, When I worked at the Daily Telegraph, I was attempting to cover French politics. And uh, my French was pretty rudimentary. And a very sweet woman came in from King's College, London, every Tuesday evening and uh, talked to me in French. And I struggled and tried to talk back to her. And she would become almost vicious. She was the nicest woman imaginable. She would become almost vicious with me if I did not uh, garde le subjonctif. She said, you should use a subjunctive there. She said, a child of 11 in a French school would use a subjunctive there, you clot. And I felt... (laughs) utterly humiliated and I presume because of Oliver's own precision with the subjunctive he's had the same teacher at some stage (laughs) but we don't think badly of the French we think badly of the French for many reasons but not but But not for that reason, not that they are so peculiar about their language. I wouldn't want to go so far as to have an academy as the French, which I think is really silly, and is one of the things that we can be, you know, poke fun at about the French. But we should take an aesthetic pride in using the precision tool of our language properly. Oliver has talked about Times readers writing to him. I used to have, ending up on my desk, the quite vitriolic letters of telegraph readers for whom an an outbreak of war was was little compared with, not the splitting of an infinitive, but a a hanging clause, um, or or, or a a, a plural where there should have been a singular and vice versa. And I would whittle down, or my colleagues would whittle down this slew of eleven, twelve hundred 1,200 applicants some year to around 200. And these were all. We only advertised at what is known as the best universities, uh, and at the best universities they were supplying us with these people. When it came to the shortlisting, there was a boy who was a very, very bright boy indeed. He had a double first from Cambridge, which is more than I ever achieved, uh, and I instinctively deferred to him and respected him. And we made him come back with the other twelve people, other eleven people on the shortlist, to do a spelling test. Uh, they were supplied with the 45 hardest words to spell in the English language. And the other 11 candidates got between 35 and 45, which I thought was commendable. You know, we, we can't all be perfect. Um, this boy, with his double first, got, I think, 18 or 19. And I was rather shocked. Uh, I presumed he had used a spell check for his application. Uh, he obviously had some native cunning. I uh, the one got into Cambridge in the first place. And... <laughs> I was distressed and I was on a sabbatical at the time at my college at Cambridge and the next day I said to the very brilliant Don who taught English is it possible to get a double first in English at this supposedly great university without an ability to spell? And she said well of course it is. Now, that has changed in the 30 years since I was an undergraduate, because I'm pretty certain that I would have got a third-class degree or a special or something really grim like that if I had been unable to spell. I wasn't just being tested on my knowledge of Jane Austen or my ability to um, uh, work out what Shakespeare's metaphors meant. I think I was being tested on an ability to communicate. And it was it was manifest to me that the debauchery of our education system in the last 30 years has stopped people from communicating. I, when I brought out Strictly English, I was attacked by various professional linguists who said, huh, you know... Don't make up rules like that. You know, whatever, whatever anybody says goes, it's all fine. It's a free-for-all. And I agree with John. You know, young people are, um, are fully entitled to speak English as they wish and to communicate among themselves uh, in whatever way they see possible. But when the moment comes when you actually apply for a job or apply for a place at a good university and you don't get that place at the university or you don't get that job because you can't write English properly, it's all very well for um, a professor um, sitting, I don't mean Mary in this case because she wouldn't dream of being so ignorant but I, I, don't, um, I don't think it's very good for a professor um, who has made his way to the top um, to sit and say it's all very well for other people to speak English badly when he's got a job and he's got a security in his life and young people are failing because many of us do still speak English people buy books like mine and like Oliver's and they buy them because they're interested in maintaining that precision tool and they don't like people who don't respect the language. All I'm asking for is to respect the language. I'm sure it isn't really going to the dogs, but it's there is a climate where we fetishize the bad use of English. It's not big, and it's not clever, and I urge you to yes, I urge you to support the motion. Thank you. <laughs>
1: And now, please welcome our final speaker against the motion, Professor of Classics at Cambridge University, television broadcaster and author of the widely read blog, A Don's Life, in which she comments on worlds both ancient and modern, Professor Mary Beard.
5: Uh, Well, I'm at a disadvantage here because I'm the only amateur on the panel. Um, My ally, Oliver, writes a column about little knotty problems of language. And the blokes at the other end have both written books about this. Uh, They're the kind of guys who go home at night we have to imagine and enjoy discussing with their partners whether disinterested is different from uninterested. (laughs) They get up in the morning, and unless they 're John, they listen to the Today program, and they get they get cross about flouting, flaunting, flaunting the rules without realizing the poor guy was making a joke wasn 't he? Simon just missed the joke anyway i 'm um, here as the classicist uh, amateur, and I suppose you would think that possibly um, a woman who was really brought up on um, Latin grammar from the age of about 11 would perhaps be on their side of the debate but I'm not and I feel actually Intelligence Squared brings out the sort of dissident in me because last time I was here I found myself a lefty defending the right of the public schools to exist and here I am saying that
0: Promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these new tropic chews at Ollie.com. That's oll dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
5: It's because, um, I mean, I've got a foot in two camps, really, because I think I'm a reformed pedant. You know, they're pedants, but I'm a kind of recovering pedant, recovering alcoholic. Um... And I'm reformed in this sense. And as I said, um, I was brought up on grammar. I was brought up more on Latin grammar uh, than English grammar. Um, and I learned and devoured all the rules and exceptions to particular forms of Latin usage that we were very expertly, if rather ruthlessly, taught. I mean... I don't know how many people in the room um, actually suffered some of this, but I remember learning things like you use in, and that's the Latin for in, you use in with the ablative case unless you're talking about a town or a small island, in which case you use the locative case. And I remember thinking, how small does the island have to be <laughs> before you know whether to use the locative or not? But anyway, I got off on this, I have to say. Uh, And that's really because I think I was a bit of a control freak in my teens and my 20s. And Latin was a great language whose practice and principles uh, you could lay out and you could control or obey. Uh, And you could could write it down and tabulate it. Uh, And I still think there's something fun about that. But... It was only in my 30s, when I'd been in a university job for some time, that I discovered what is the horrible but in some ways truly liberating truth. That is to say, Latin grammar that I'd spent such a long time learning believing it to be a a deeply Roman form was actually something that had been invented by Germans in the 19th century. (laughs) who had looked at all the Latin there was, they could find, and they tried to make the rules. They didn't completely actually succeed in making the rules, and that's why there were all those exceptions, because the exceptions were the things that the Germans couldn't actually make fit their otherwise brilliant scheme. So I guess I have come to relish change, and to relish difference, and subversion, and linguistics revelry I'm pleased that we don't much have an accusative case in the English language now you know I'm very glad that we don't go around talking about thou and thee I find things like Finnegan's Wake are absolutely enriching and I'm hugely delighted that words change their meaning that we have new distinctions that we want to draw and I think that's fun and interesting and it has a historical depth to it. I remember the first time that I read Jane Austen, just to give you one example the other way around. I can't remember which one it was, but Mr. Somebody was in the drawing room with Miss Somebody, and it said, they were making love in front of the fire. And I thought, blimey! Oh. <laughs> making love in front... And eventually, after they'd done this several times you know, in public, um, I realised that it just meant flirt, Right? Now, nobody's saying here that there are no rules to language and that anybody like me is throwing them away. There's no social activity in the world that doesn't have rules. I mean, none of you have come this evening in your bathing costumes. You know, we have rules of costume, of demeanour and deportment and language. But actually, what rules enable us to do is to break them, to avow different ones, to... Debate what they should be and actually to transcend the damn things. And it seems to me that the most authoritative and independent and enriching language users are those who know the rules. You know, you don't start a job application, hi, mate. You know, that wouldn't be, you know, in Simon's terms, not a great idea. But they have a sufficient grip that they can uh, overturn subvert them, and make the language do new things. Because the bottom line is, this language is ours. It's not, you know, it doesn't own us. We own it. And we want to use it to do new jobs. So, um... What I suppose I wondered is where does it leave these two blokes on the other side? Now, at a certain point, I felt that John was should have been on our side anyway. I didn't think he really belonged with Simon. Um, <laughs> um, you know, another way I look at them, and I think. Mm, they're a wonderful example of what I'm trying not to say, but I'm going to, uh, the traditional English grumpy old man, you know, <laughs> who have been around forever saying, Oh, it's not the same. Now, there were Roman, there were Roman grumpy old men too, you know, who said people aren't using in with the ablative properly, I guess. Um, they've been around for centuries. Um, but I think in that way, they're rather valuable to us. I mean, I like to have them there as a, as an example of, so to keep us on our toes but not necessarily to follow they're a useful reminder of what you might do with a language if you were just that little bit well-meaning but misguided that's where I want to keep them uh I think the key is to love them, cherish them, not to vote for them, let me say. That would be a very great mistake. Don't believe all that they say. When Heffer tells me in his book that collide comes from the Latin collidere and you can only ever use it of two moving objects, therefore you can't collide into a tree, I'll tell you, he's just wrong, right? (laughs)
2: But uh,
5: yeah, collidery means bruise in Latin. Um, anyway, so long as we they, they, they kind of keep us on our toes, I think that's fine, but don't let them spoil our fun. One and minute. And don't... I'm going to finish even prompting the blokes, <laughs> of course. Um, do not let you feel that you've somehow been a moral failure. You know, if you've done some naughty linguistic bit of uh, you or I up there. That what we're going to do is keep language constantly on its toes, doing different things, drawing new distinctions. I don't care if I talk about issues or problems. I'm wanting to refresh what we're talking about, not leave it in the same blasted dark hole. Thank you very much. You're voting no.
1: So the next stage of our debate will involve all of you. But before we throw things open to the floor, I will reveal the vote. Everybody voted as they came in. Uh, And so before the debate, we had for the motion a pretty resounding 53%, which doesn't entirely surprise me, I have to say. And against the motion a respectable 27%, but with a crucial swing. 20% don't know. So I don't want any untorn ballots at the end of this when we take um, the votes. Again, make a decision. So now we have um, microphones, I think, going around. And what I'm going to do, so we get the most um, kind of good conversation, is I'm going to collect two or three... Questions and please keep your questions brief and you can direct them um, to all of the panelists, to a panel, panelist in particular. Um, let's have one at the front right here and wait till you have the microphone to speak, please.
5: Um, can you hear me? Yeah, I used to teach English to foreigners in London. I was preparing them for important exams and possibly jobs using English. They used to say sometimes, but my landlady says you was. My landlady says I ain't got none. What, according to um, the panel, should I have replied?
1: Okay, so that's our one. Let's take another question.
3: Uh, Oliver Cam spoke with such conviction that just for a moment it occurred to me he might conceivably be right. But then I came to my senses. (laughs) (laughs) Surely the point is this. When a man, say, is speaking to somebody, he wants the person to whom he is speaking to understand what he means. If he then uses disinterested and uninterested at random, it depends on the context, but the listener may very well not understand what he means. Now, to use Mary Beard's expression, I don't think that's fun and interesting. I think it's just plain silly.
2: Are you looking at me? Yeah,
1: why not?
2: All right, well, but, but I first have to make a very, very, very important point in relation to what um, Mary said. She accused me of being a, uh, an English grumpy old man. <laughs> Mary, I'm Welsh. <laughs> the, re- the rest of the description <laughs> I accept with pride. <laughs> uh, the lady with a landlady... But that's the point, isn't it? You're making such an important point there. If she continues, if your students had continued... To use that sort of usage. They would not. Well, hey, they wouldn't have passed any exams in the language, that's for sure. But they wouldn't have been able to communicate as clearly as they otherwise might have done. And that's it. That's what it's all about. And all the stuff that Mary's given... She knows it's nonsense. You could see the way she was delivering it. She knows how to, And whereas Oliver was absolutely brilliant. I mean, I didn't understand. I thought, he said, but that's not the point. And he is... <laughs> He is very clever. And by God, did he speak beautiful English. So he's also learned as well. I mean, that's, that's the point. Um, and um, the, well, exactly, exactly. What, what an important distinction that, that there is. The, yeah, of course we can lose words. Of course we can. And nobody is going to suddenly wake up on Thursday morning and say, my God, that, that word we, we had doesn't exist any longer, so I can't possibly use it again. It doesn't work like that. But gradually, there is an accretion of these things. And the more, word, look, the more words we lose, the poorer our language becomes. And what I want to do, that is a bit silly, of course it is. But what I want to do is to preserve and protect the wonderful language that we have. And all this stuff about Latin. I mean, of course, Latin is all rubbish. But the, the, we, we have a beautiful, expressive language. Beautiful in art, beautiful in every conceivable sense when it's used properly, and we know when it's being used properly, don't we? That's what it comes down to. And all I want to do is preserve it and protect it. Change it, of course, all the time, endlessly. It's dynamic. But let's hold on. Let's not. Cliche coming up. Sorry, Simon. Let's not chuck out the baby with the bathwater. Sorry. I
1: like Oliver. Would like to add, I think.
2: Yes.
3: Let me deal with your point first, madam. You should say to the students that English has many dialects and many registers. You use different forms of English in different contexts. And if the foreign students whom you're talking to are applying for a job, for example, they need to master the register of standard English as it is written and as it is spoken. But that isn't, in inverted commas, proper English which John has said several times now, using English properly, that's a particular form of English. It's standard English. And I referred earlier to the um, abolition, not as a conscious decision, but as a falling into disuse of instruction in grammar in schools around the 1960s. And it was a good thing because the content of those lessons was rubbish. But it was a bad thing that nothing replaced them until much more recently. An English language is taught well in schools now. Every August, you get scares about declining standards of literacy. It's not true. There is a persistent problem with people, particularly in the labour market, who can't use language fluently, but that's nothing to do with declining standards of literacy. And you, would, you should say to the, to, to, to the young people that you've talked to who learn English as a foreign language, um, master the language in different registers, um, because you can use it in different ways, in different contexts. And I'll use the word situation, in different situations. Second question, referring to the distinction between disinterested and uninterested. You answered your own question, sir, when you said you can tell from the context. That's the thing that the sticklers never look at. How do I know when Simon Heffer uses the word wicked that he doesn't mean it as a term of approbation? I know...
4: (laughs) Well,
2: with <laughs> you. Well, well with well <laughs> you.
3: I know from this. the context, and yes, the use of disinterested to mean bored is doubtless originally a misconception, but it exists, and we use the word interest in dual or indeed multiple senses, but we don't we don't confuse it because we know from the context, and that's what. The sticklers don't grasp.
5: Can I just say about this disinterested and uninterested? See that the question really is not whether we can put which words we're going to put in the zoo or put the preservation order on, or make kind of endangered species that will be, you know, specially mated in um, in order to make sure they've got some, you know, some suitable offspring. The question is what are the distinctions we want to draw? What do we want to what, what are the distinctions and the differences that we want our language to help us point up? Now, if the case were that all we were doing was making cruder and cruder distinctions then I might say, well, look, there there might be a problem here with the language, but I don't think... I mean, as all of us say, it's partly about context. It's partly about... We have different ways of representing the distinction that we once used to represent as disinterested and uninterested. It isn't that we've given up on that. Uh, We just do it differently. You know, in some ways, that's, that's fine by me. I'm interested in the distinction and the arguments, not the actual words that go with them. That's where... With Twitter, I think you know, I think Oliver's right about the language. I think the problem with Twitter is what it's doing to arguments, and that might be that might be something different. I don't think it's ruining the English language. Very
1: good. And I'm, we have a question from the top.
3: Yes. Speaking as someone who's married to an American <laughs> and who's come this yes. evening with a second American, uh, I'd like to ask the panelists: Do you agree that
4: it's mostly the fault? Of the Yanks. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, well, we're going to really hang on to that question because it obviously must be addressed.
4: I'd like to ask John Humphrey if he could share with us the, his understanding of the word impartial. <laughs> And if it happens to be the same as the one we all read in the dictionary, could he explain to us how the left-leaning language that is increasingly coming out of the BBC is is consistent with its charter obligation (laughs) to be impartial? In other words, is it the BBC or the language going to the dogs? Perhaps we can come
1: back to impartiality. So, Simon, you haven't...
4: Well, I, I wouldn't dream of uh, uh, trespassing on John's territory, but he will give you—he will give you an, a, a, a definition of what disinterested means in terms of the BBC when he speaks. Um, some of the, these other questions seem to melt into each other. I don't think it's the fault of the Yanks at all. America has a, is a distinct country, it's a, a distinct culture, it has a distinct language, which occasionally bears a resemblance to ours. Um, (Laughter) And I wouldn't presume to uh, judge uh, how Americans speak and write it. I think it's a fault of the education system. There was a distressing story in the paper today. I think I read it in Oliver's paper, so it must be true. Um, It said that people who have English as a second language have a much higher chance of getting a job straight from school or university than people uh, who have English as a first language. And it singled out... Um, the, the usual whipping boys, the white working class in our country, who uh, are apparently neglected by the education system. And these people have been terribly betrayed. I remember John in uh, August about 10 years ago on the Today programme interviewing two examiners from the GCSE board um, to, and asking them what it took to get a pass in English and maths. I'm sure John remembers his interview. And the two exam- the examiner in English uh, admitted after under heavy questioning from John in a very disinterested way that, uh, that, that with, without being able to spell or even write properly, you could pass uh, English language GCSE. I went into a really good comprehensive school uh, three years ago when my book was published and met some of the sixth formers there, the headmaster, who uh, was a very fine man, who told me he wrote books for teachers who teach English in schools, assured me that spelling mistakes and grammatical errors were corrected right across the curriculum in his school uh, because he knew how dangerous it was to let his pupils out at the age of 16 or 18 uh, without a proper command of the English language. When I asked the sixth form uh, what their experience was of their teachers correcting uh, these things in biology or history or geography, they said none of them did. And uh, the headmaster was there and put his head in his hands, and I don't know who got beaten up later, whether it was him or the the teachers or or the pupils. I think there are terrible problems in our school. We seem to be very reluctant to make people learn a language rigorously, as I said, in the way that the French or the Germans do. Um, We need to be realistic and shape our young people for the world in which they're going to live, not the world in which we would like them to live. And unfortunately, we we live in a world where the minute an Englishman or Englishwoman opens their mouths, there was a grammatical error for you, um, they are judged by what they say and how they've said it. And I wish it wasn't like that, but it is, and it will continue to be like that without any help from people like me or John Humphreys. And so we had better start saying to people, if you wish to be treated as an educated person, you have to become an educated person in terms of using the language. And that is something that schools, I think, are graphically failing our young people in at the moment.
3: Oliver? The question, is it the fault of the Yanks, as you put it, say, no, of course not. Um, There is a widespread supposition or a prejudice that you hear in language debates in this country, Uh, and I'll single out one particular culprit, Prince Charles. Um, There's a widespread supposition that the American dialect is a debased form of English. Uh, It isn't both the dialect I speak and the dialect that, um, uh, that, that, uh, that my American equivalents would speak, let's say a columnist on the New York Times would speak, um, they are not, neither is pure English, they are descendants of a common ancestor. And in many respects, the American dialect is closer to that common ancestor than my own dialect. Um, for example, if you listen to Erica, she will doubtless pronounce the R in Labour Party, whereas I won't. Um, in that respect, the American dialect is closer to history than my own. They're just different ways of expressing English. They're not a corruption. Um, they're, not a, they're not a debasement. They're just dialects, and there's nothing correct or incorrect about a dialect. It's just something we pick up.
1: I, I feel I, I should say that, obviously, I, I do not think, this is where I will show my colours in this debate, um, that... It's all the fault of the Yanks and that American English is debased. I have to say, I'm married to an Englishman. There is some confusion in our house about what we mean by pants. But <laughs> we manage. We manage. Uh, I
5: also think we have to just watch Dr Heffer a bit with his admiration of the French education system. You know, somehow we've been led to believe that the French have got it all right, they teach grammar, and he's about to say the taxi drivers quote Voltaire, because that's what usually comes next. Taxi Rumble. drivers. Taxi drivers Rumble. know one quotation from Voltaire, which they use every time. Now, actually... That uh, you know the underbelly of the French education system is no better at doing what Simon thinks thinks wrongly he wants uh, than ours is. Probably that's fine, but I don't think we ought to think you know that for, on, on one issue only you can go across the channel and find they've got it right, Dr. Heffer, because I don't think they have.
1: Let's
2: have. Um... Uh, do to... Yes. He, he did yes. attack the BBC. after Oh all. yes, he did. So, yeah, he did. I mean, I don't have to speak. I can no
1: judge...
2: go. Um, I, um, incidentally, I do congratulate um, Oliver on, on on that wonderful construction of straw man. if ever I want a straw man built in my garden to scare away the crows, I'm going to call on you because we didn't say anything anyway. Whatever. <laughs> let let <laughs> let let others let others judge that. Um, impartiality, I think the questioner knows precisely what it. Of course he knows exactly what it is. Um, it's, what he's getting at is, is this uh, notion that he is festering away in his mind that um, the BBC is partial. Uh, first of all, the BBC is not monolithic, so therefore it is not partial. There are those people who work for it who take one view. There are those people who work for it who take another view. Um, but you, asked, you, you made it rather more personal than that, and you asked me about my impartiality. All I can tell you, sir, is that I've been doing this job on the Today programme for 27 years, and I have been accused by all of them <laughs> of being unfair to all of them, and I hope that continues. Because I mean, I know it's, it's 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 a rather crude and clumsy way of measuring impartiality, isn't it? But uh, but I reckon, you know, if if um, one moment you're being uh, attacked by the Labour Party, um, by the Conservative Party rather, for poisoning the well of democratic debate, which is what a certain Jonathan Aitken, who subsequently went to jail, but we'll put that to one side, (laughs) (laughs) uh, said, said, said about me. And, uh, and then, and, and, and praised by the Labour Party simultaneously, the, simultaneously for, for saving democracy on behalf of a grateful nation, and then when the Labour Party came to power, all of a sudden you find that actually, as they said in the left of the BBC, something must be done about the John Humphreys problem. I mean, you know, that's the way... It's, it's politics, for God's sake, and you should be old enough and ugly enough to know that. And I would... As, as for whether it's the fault of the BBC or not, and uh, obviously you think it is the fault of the BBC, whatever the fault happens to be, all I would say, i would be entirely serious here... I put aside what the Today programme does. Some people like it, some don't. Uh, The BBC is, I believe, immensely important to this country. I struggle to imagine this country without the BBC for all its many, many, many faults. I think it's a great civilising institution, and I hope it survives.
1: Well, ladies and gentlemen, the results are in. So a little reminder that before the debate, there were 53% of you for the motion that the English language is going to the dogs. 27 were against, and there was a don't know, a possible swing of 20%. After the debate, 57% are for, so even more strongly but and against the motion 41% so so the motion have won but against have definitely won the swing so well done to everyone
2: (laughs) (laughs) what was about
1: Thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs>